Isn't it great after you've had a hard day at work and maybe a trying day and then you come together tonight and just the peace of singing about Jesus and thinking about Him and ending your day on a high note knowing that you're loved and He's indwelling you through the Holy Spirit prepared a place for you in heaven and your name is written in the Lamb's book of life and to know that your steps are ordered of God that He's got His angels around you and to know that in your life that it is filled with power that doesn't come from you and it doesn't come from the world but it comes from the Lord and we want to talk a little bit about that tonight because we're going to talk about security we live in an anxious anxious world uh, even if we don't need to be we're always gonna find something to be worried about to be anxious about when the Bible tells us be anxious for nothing right and yet we find ourselves struggling with all of that. We have alarm systems. We have cameras on our houses. We have a, a modern police force. We have all kinds of things. Locks on our doors and our windows. And yet we find ourselves still being anxious. And if we get security in one area, the enemy will bring up, yeah, but you don't know what's going to happen in another area. And about the time maybe you feel good about your health, now you're worried about the economy. About the time maybe you feel good about the economy, you're worried about politics. And about the time maybe you feel good about politics, I mean, it just goes on and on and on and on. And that's part of the enemy's strategy to rob us of our strength and of our joy. Remember we've talked uh, in the first couple of verses out of Psalm 9 about how we are to praise the Lord and our praises cause us to talk of the Lord and talking of the Lord brings joy of the Lord into our life and the joy of the Lord is what energizes our worship. Now we've got to get this all in context though because you remember this is a psalm of David and David is, as we write this, feeling pretty good. But why would a king ever feel insecure? I mean, I'm, I tend to think that if I were a king like David sitting on a throne, I could do anything I wanted, anytime I wanted. I'm rich, I'm doing well, I've got everything that uh, a king could want. Why would a king ever feel insecure? Well, think about it. They didn't have elections. They didn't have term limits. You know how new kings got into power? When the old king died. Yeah. Sometimes they died of old age. And the son, the heir, would take over the throne of his father. Not always a good thing. Sometimes those sons were idiots, weren't they? And uh, sometimes they were ungodly and uh, those type of things. But that's really the only way it happened. I mean, I guess the king could resign or something like that. But most of the time, it was through death. Now, okay, we, we just brought up one scenario king's on the throne he reigns for 40 50 or don't don't you know that over in england right now that uh prince charles is going is the old lady ever going to die you know he's by the time he gets on the throne he won't last long will he but uh that's that's one scenario and that's what we like to think of but in david's day a lot of times the new king took the throne because they assassinated the old king. Now we've been through some traumatic presidential assassinations in our, in our country's history. But back in the days of David, that would have been 
something that would be even more common. Now, it might be an inside job. There are times in history where you find a family member or a member of, uh, for lack of a better word, their cabinet or administration kills one of them. Ask Caesar what that's like. Et tu, Brute, remember that? Think about uh, other times uh, when there's an enemy, when there are spies, when there are subversive people coming in and their job is to kill you so that enemy invaders can come in and there's no, uh, no king. It could also be through a war. David was a warrior and there were constant wars that he had to fight. He could be killed in battle. He could be mortally wounded. And um, that happened to Saul and Jonathan just before him. And it could happen to David. He never knew when he was going to be attacked. They didn't have the uh, satellites that we have. They didn't have the ability to keep up with all of that. They had to have, of course, spies and had to ascertain things. And they had to have watchmen and all of that. But at, at any given moment, a king might feel like his life, his administration, his rule, his right to be on the throne would be uh, imperiled. And I suppose that could be true to some degree even today for any world leader. But think about it back in the days of David. And so as we uh, read these verses, David is telling us that true security comes from the Lord and the things that he does. We don't always see his work. We don't always see his hand, but he is always at work. Nations rise, nations fall. Romans 13, people are put in power. They're taken out of power. This is what God does. And David may not have understood all of that, but he understood enough to rest in the Lord. And so uh, what's our excuse? We ought to be able to rest in the Lord because we know so much more than David even did. Because we have all 66 books of the Bible. Well, let's read what he wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In Psalm 9, we'll look at verses 3 through 6. When my enemies turn back, they shall fall and perish at your presence. For you have maintained my right and my cause. Okay, my right and my cause. That's important. And you sat on the throne, judging in righteousness. Verse 5. You have rebuked the uh, nations. And uh, that word nations can also be the, the ungodly, the Gentiles, that type of thing. Because that's who would attack Israel. And you have destroyed the wicked. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. O enemy, destructions are Finished forever. In other words, God's verdict is final. No appeal, no getting around it. And you have destroyed cities, even from their memory, even their memory has perished, David says. Okay, so let's think about this. Because the main subject in all of this is God and what God does to his enemies and why David is feeling joyful, why he's praising the Lord and talking of the Lord in verses 1 and 2. And then why we get to verse 3, we find out uh, why it is. And first of all, I want you to think about how the presence of God was manifested. The presence of God was manifested. Notice that 
He says in verse 3, When my enemies turn back, they shall fall and perish. At what? At your presence. Now, that seems strange to me because God is everywhere. Okay? He's not just in heaven. He's not just in the church. He's not just in a certain place or time. But the scripture is very clear. God is everywhere. And yet at this particular time, the enemies turn back at the presence of God. Well, where was he at the last battle? Where was he at the battle where they got whipped and where they were conquered? What, what's going on here? Well, think about it. How many people are aware of God's presence? God is everywhere. The psalmist said in Psalm 139, if I go as high up as I can go to heaven, you're there. If I go as deep as I can go into the grave or even into hell, you're there. You're always there. You're always with me. So that means that God is here with us. He's at our home. He is on the road and the route that you take home. He's at work. He's at school. He is everywhere that we go. But how many people are aware of the presence of God? And even for those who might be aware of the presence of God, which I would assume you would be, am I right about that? How many of you does it affect your life or change your life? And I think most of us would have to say, well, it does. And then we would say a sheepish, sometimes, sometimes. Because there are times when I'm not aware of God and neither are you. There are those times when he doesn't feel close and yet he is. There are those times when we even say things like, "Woo, God showed up in church today. Or what are you implying? That he wasn't there before? Of course he was. He's always there, and he's always with us. And that's why I have in this point the manifested presence of God. There are those times when you feel it. There are those times when you not only know that God is present, but you are experiencing the joy of his presence. And David is saying here that my enemies came and they turned back. And what happened? They ran into God even when they were retreating and they ran into him in a way where they couldn't mistake him and they couldn't overlook him and they couldn't forget him. They ran right into God. You see, in those days, most of the people in the world believed in uh, polytheism, a lot of gods. Israel brought monotheism, one God, into the world. So the idea of the nations, the goyim, the, the Gentiles, as it says, their idea was if we can attack another country and we win, that's because my God's bigger than your God, or my God's, plural, are bigger than your God's. And so every time Israel lost a battle, it was an insult to Yahweh. Every time Israel was conquered or occupied or taken into exile, that profaned the name of God because all of the nations then would say, our God made out of stone, our God made out of wood, our God that we fashioned with our own hands is bigger, better, and badder than the God that Israel says they worship. So this is a big deal. And so whenever David talks about this, he is excited because enemies have attacked them and instead of getting something to where they can gloat over the God of Israel, they're tucking their tail between their legs. They are running and even when they run in retreat, what happens to them? When my enemies turn back, they shall fall, 
They stumble and they perish. They are defeated. And what defeats them? Not the armies of Israel. David gives credit where credit is due. At your presence. God is everywhere all the time. But sometimes he really shows his presence. I wonder if it would change anything in the White House tonight if the presence of God was manifested. I wonder if it would change anything in the halls of Congress if the presence of God were to be manifested. Now, you and I have experienced those times. You remember when you got saved? God was as real as the plexiglass on this pulpit. You remember that time when you were so desperate, you had no place else to turn, and you turned to God in prayer, and God was as real as anything you've ever experienced. Have you ever been on the, by, at the deathbed of a dying believer? And as sad as it might be, and through the tears, you sense the presence of God and of His holy angels. Am I right about that? You think about all of the times when you have a need and you don't know what you're going to do. And all of a sudden, seemingly out of nowhere, the need is met. You think about those times when you come to church and you can barely drag yourself in. And while we're singing a song Brother Dale has picked out, or through a message, or through your Sunday school uh, lessons, or through the fellowship with another believer, all of a sudden your burden is lifted and you feel and sense the presence of God. Think of all of those times. Now, it's not all the time. It's not every time. If it was every time, all the time, we couldn't stand it for one thing. And we would, as depraved humans, we would just get used to it, take it for granted. And so God is gracious to us. He allows it to come sometimes, and other times we have to walk by faith. Well, this is what David is seeing, and he's seeing the victory come into his life and into his kingdom over the enemy because of the manifested presence of God. That's what you can pray for when you pray for Sunday morning. Pray for God's presence to be manifested. That's what you can pray for whenever you're praying for a lost friend or relative. Pray that God's presence would be manifested, put on display in their life where they couldn't deny it. Now, not everyone is aware of his presence. For example, in Exodus, good to go back there. We're familiar with that. Chapter 5, verse 2. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. How long did that last? The manifested presence of God changed Pharaoh's mind in a short period of time, didn't it? And when you think about it, that really is something that we need to pray about, and we need to seek, and we need to honor the Lord by asking Him and thanking Him when He does show His manifested presence. That changes so much. Someone said, when God lets His presence be known, things change. And for the believer, we know that we are, here's a quote, living with a conscience, conscious awareness of God's presence will keep us from sin. An awareness of His closeness will remind us that sin offends and grieves Him. Living with a conscious awareness of God's presence will keep us sensitive. An awareness of His closeness 
will remind us to guard our thoughts, our words, and behavior. Living with a conscious awareness of God's presence will keep us secure. An awareness of His closeness will remind us that He keeps us and that He cares about us. True safety in the life of a believer is not necessarily the absence of danger or the absence of difficulty as much as it is a strong sense of God's presence and power in all situations. In Psalm 139, verses 7 through 11, the psalmist is rehearsing the truth that nothing could possibly separate us from God's presence and from God himself. Distance could not separate him. Darkness could not separate him. And danger could not separate him. He was comforted with the words, Behold, thou art there. That's the way we ought to live. And we ought to be aware whenever we are thinking about sinning or thinking that we're justified in our sin or thinking that we have a right to sin to realize we are standing face to face in the presence of God. And if you wouldn't do it in heaven in front of the throne of God, if you wouldn't do it in the church house in front of your brothers and sisters in Christ, why would you be so arrogant as to think you can do it in the presence of God in everyday life? We've got to be aware of the presence of God. In Psalm 115 verse 2, the psalmist says, Why should the nation say, Where is their God? And I'm afraid so many times we live a life that shows them or causes them to think that God must be off somewhere on vacation, that God must be way off in heaven instead of them seeing and sensing the presence of God in our life as we live and we walk by faith. It's a very challenging and convicting thing when you think about this. In Cuba, when uh, Fidel Castro first took over, one of the things they were working on was the school children. If they could get the school children won over to communism and Castro's rule, they knew that they would rule that island nation for generations. Soldiers would come into the classrooms and uh, they'd be well armed and all of that. And they would come in and take over the class. And then they would say to the children, how many of you believe in God? Well, Cuba was a very Catholic country before communism. And uh, so the kids would raise their hand. They had all been to Sunday school and church and catechisms and mass and all of those kind of things. They'd raise their hands. And so the soldiers would say, then I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes and ask God for candy. Well, you know, little kids, they bow their heads, they close their eyes. Please, God, give me some candy. And when they opened their eyes, you know what they saw on their desk? Nothing. The soldiers would then say, now bow your head and close your eyes and ask Fidel Castro for candy. And while they had their eyes closed, the soldiers would put candy on their desk. And so the kids got it in their mind, God can't do anything for you. God's not here. God's not working. But Castro will. And if you want anything, look to the government. 
If you want anything, look to these rulers. And that is the thing that is going on in our country today. It's as if we have a, a group of people over half of the country that really ought to get on their knees and ought to say, Our Father, which art in Washington, hallowed be thy name. Because they've learned that by giving us free stuff, they can control our lives. They can put regulations on us. They can control what we do, where we go, how we spend. And government encroaches more and more and more. And we look to government. The government should do something. The president should do something. Congress should do something. And we've forgotten about the presence of God. We've forgotten about the miracles of God in this nation. We've forgotten about all of the times he has, as it says in the Star-Spangled Banner, where God has protected and preserved us a nation. A lot of times we could have fallen, but we haven't. And we're being challenged now. And I think it's up to believers now to get right with God and to live with a sense of the presence of God. Well, that brings us to point number two. As we think about this in light of David and ourselves. Number two, the Lord protected his righteous people. It says in verse four, <clears throat> For you have maintained my right, my rightness, and my cause. And you sat on the throne judging in righteousness. It's as if David is saying, even if my enemy could topple me off of the throne, they can't topple you off of the throne that really matters. And David says that you upheld my right. What right is that? The right to be king. The enemy wanted to throw David off. They wanted to assassinate him. They wanted to get him off of the throne and put themselves on the throne. And David says, no, you upheld my right. I am king by your divine will. And my cause, the glory of God, has been upheld through all of this. And I am secure. It's said that General Stonewall Jackson, during the Civil War, someone said to him, why is it that you are able to be so comfortable in battle? They said he would stay there even among the uh, bullets and the artillery like a stone wall. That's where he got his name. You know what he told them? He said, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, and my faith in Christ teaches me that I can be just as comfortable on the battlefield as I am in my bed because my life is in the hands of God. Boy, if we could think like that, to know that we are invincible until it's time for us to go home and be with the Lord, what are we afraid of? Fear not, the Bible says, for I am with thee. Oh, we need to understand that. And David did understand that. And he knew that it was God who held him up. It was God who kept him on the throne. It was God who protected him. And that nothing or no one could touch him without going through God first. That's a blessing. And that's where you really are able to rest in the Lord. You say, well, surely David didn't have any problems. Well, he had a lot of wars that he had to fight, and he also had a lot of people that wanted to assassinate him. He had people that would give false accusations against him to turn the people against him. Did you know that? The Bible says in Psalm 109, verses 1 through 3, Be not silent, O God, of my praise, for wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me, with words of hate and attack me without cause. That's not easy to be a leader. 
It's not easy to be the attack of everything that's going on because when you're a king like David, everything kind of, well, the buck stops here. You've heard that. It really does when you're the king. You can't blame it on anybody else. You're the king. You've got to make things happen, and everybody's going to blame you for the decisions you make. Whenever you're in leadership, it, it, it's hard to make decisions sometimes because you know what pleases one person is going to irritate another person. And depending on how big those groups are, it can be a real problem. And David would make decisions that maybe righteous people would applaud, but the ungodly wouldn't. And so David is constantly under scrutiny like that. Going on down in Psalm 109 to verse 21, it says, But you, O God my Lord, deal on my behalf for your name's sake, because your steadfast love is good. Deliver me, for I am poor and needy, and my heart is stricken within me. And so what is David telling us here? I'm encircled by lies, encircled by hatred, encircled by false accusations. It threatens my kingdom. It threatens my security. It threatens my life. But he knew he had a protector that was bigger and stronger than all of the armies and all of the people who could come against him. He was resting in the Lord. That's why we worship him. That's why we praise him. That's why we talk about him. That's why we study him. Because we've got to rest in him. Because in times like these, you need a relationship with God. And you've got to know that the God you serve is almighty, all-powerful, and omnipresent in every situation which you are in. David was firmly convinced that God was defending him and upholding him. And Jesus did the same thing. Like a lamb led before the slaughter, the Bible says, he opened not his mouth. Why? He had nothing to defend himself. When Peter pulled out his sword and went after the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear, Jesus said, put away the sword. He didn't need that defense. Remember, Jesus said, all I have to do is call upon my Father and he'll send ten legions of angels. This is not what you think it is. This is the will of God. He didn't feel the need to defend himself. Even the Apostle Paul was like that. In Philippians 1, 19 and 20, it says, For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether in life or death. Now, how do you defeat somebody with that kind of attitude? How do you defeat it? The Romans would say, we'll kill you. And Paul said, good, I'm ready to go home. Well, then we'll put you in prison. Good. I'll just sing praises to the Lord. Earthquakes happen, don't they? Think about the way Paul lived and the security that he had. It was so much like Christ. And Christ so exemplified what we even read about his ancestor, King David. Faith and trust in the Lord. We need to be like the man who said to Jesus, I believe because we do. Help thou my unbelief because we have that as well, don't we? Number three, the Lord powerfully rebuked the hostile nations. See, David knew, as you read verse uh, 5 and 6, 
David knew that it wasn't just the power of his army. It wasn't just the skill of his manpower. It wasn't just the strategy of his generals. I mean, those are good. God can use all of those, and he does. And you're always grateful for those kind of things. But David knew that the only way they were going to win and the only way these nations would be turned back and the only way his throne and his family would be secured because, by the way, if they killed David, they were going to kill his wives and kill all of his children too because they didn't, one speck, they didn't want one speck of his DNA to remain. They didn't want anyone living who would have any claim to the throne at a later date. So this is a big responsibility. And he knew that if he ever won a battle, it was God who won the battle. The battle is not uh, yours. God told in the Old Testament, told his people, the battle is mine. And that's what David is talking about. You have rebuked the nations. That's why they ran. You have destroyed the wicked. And you blotted out their name forever. You know what? There are some people that David fought that we couldn't find them today if we tried. They're gone. They're wiped out. You're never going to see any of them again. And that's what David is talking about. The Lord's victory is a total victory. It is a huge victory. And he talks about cities being destroyed to the point where they can't even be rebuilt. We're not going to hear of these people. In fact, we find that when God fights, he rebukes, he destroys, he blots out, and he finishes what he starts. Now, he may not always do it on our timetable, and he may not always do it the way we want to, because David wrote plenty of other psalms where he goes, Why, Lord? Because he's just like us. But God operates in mysterious ways. His wonder is to perform, right? And so we have to have faith, and we have to trust him, but he is going to win. And so God is going to deal with evil severely, And he's going to blot out their name forever and ever, meaning that they were eternally defeated, never to be remembered, and uprooted, indicating that they were so demolished that there was no possibility of them being rebuilt. You say, how does that apply to us? That's what heaven is going to be like for us, folks. When we get to heaven, we're not going to talk about temptation. We're not going to talk about attacks. We're not going to talk about the devil. We're not going to talk about demons. We're not going to talk about any of that because they are consigned forever to the lake of fire. And the only thing that's going to consume our minds for eternity is the glory of God and the blessings and the grace of God and the provision of God. And we are going to have joy unspeakable and full of glory. Oh, what a day that's going to be. And number four, the Lord dealt with David's enemies permanently, permanently. We've kind of touched on that, haven't we? Even their memory has perished. Even their memory has perished. What God does, he does thoroughly and he does completely. And when David says that, he means there's no legacy left behind. They're not going to pop up anymore. There's no dynasty left behind It's not like sometimes you fight a battle and one king goes and another one takes his place. No, that's not going to happen. They're gone. And they are gone forever. And there's no residue or even stain. You can't even find the ruins of it. It's, It's just over and it is gone because what God does, he does completely. 
And as I said, it's a picture of heaven. In Revelation 21, verse 3, And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and he himself will be with them and be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Every tear, even the tears of memory, folks. And there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. And there will be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. That's what David's talking about. Maybe he didn't know it. Maybe he didn't understand it. But we do because we put it all together. And we say there is a day coming when Jesus is going to fight and win the final battle. And it is over. And that over is a permanent over And nothing but joy unspeakable and full of glory. The half has not been told, the scripture says. Just imagine what you think heaven is like and you're not even halfway there, the Bible says. That is amazing to me. But this is not the David that we see near the end of his life. This is a younger David, a confident David, a holy David, a David who walks with God... Not quite that way as he gets older. What changed? And this is the challenge for you and me. We may be perfectly fine right now. Doesn't mean we're going to be tomorrow. Or in another decade. Or in another couple of decades. Because David, the man after God's heart, his life fell apart. You know the story, don't you? You know the story. The same David that was able to kill Goliath could not handle his own inner lust. Isn't that amazing? This powerful man who defeated Philistine armies could not conquer his own lust. And that, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, is where the battle really is. Now, your battle may not be the same as his. Maybe you don't have a problem with lust. Well, what about anger? What about fear? What about all of the things that creep up in your mind and you just say, I can't handle this. No, you can't. But you've got a God who can. You've got to walk by faith and not by sight. David didn't. David didn't. In fact, he really walked by sight when he looked upon Bathsheba, didn't he? And his life fell apart. I want to close with Ecclesiastes (coughs) 10.1 written by David's son, the next king. Solomon. And I wonder if Solomon had his daddy in mind, and maybe his mother, when he wrote these words. Ecclesiastes 10.1 Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. They stink. So a little folly, a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. You know what Solomon was saying? He gave the illustration and then the principle. Here's the perfumer. Perfume was very expensive and very hard to make in those days. He's got it all together. Expensive. Hard work put together. Maybe it was for some type of anointing oil for the king or something like that. And the next day he comes into his shop and he says, man, I'm so glad I've got that. And he gets ready to bottle it so he can take it to the king. And as he gets ready to pour it into the bottle, he goes, what is that? And there are dead flies in the perfume. They're not only ugly, they're not only gross, 
But they begun to stink, and the odor of the perfume is not what it's supposed to be. I can't give this to the king. And even though it's just the flies are little, they give off a stench. They've ruined the perfume. And Solomon says, so folly destroys a life. Folly, no big deal. Just a little thing. Just once. Just now. It's not going to make any difference. It's no big deal. There are some people that try cocaine just once and they die. It stops their heart. They don't get another chance. There are some people that are drunk and they get in the car just once and they never come home. There are people who are in politics and they've gained a great standing and they have lots of voters and they're on Fox News and CNN and all of those kind of things are well thought of. And that one time with a prostitute or that one affair with a secretary just once completely ruins their life. You get in the picture? David, this wise man who stood in the security of God. And there was one thing that took all of that away from him. And what was it? Sin. And Solomon says... In the book of Song of Solomon, it's the little foxes that destroy the vineyard. It's not the big sins. It's the little sins, the tolerated sins, the cherished sins. The sins you indulge in and go, oh, it's no big deal. Nobody will know. Remember, you're in the presence of God all the time. When you think about Moses, what kept him out of the promised land? Just one thing. He struck the rock. What is the big deal about that? Because God told him not to. Adam and Eve plunged the whole world into a curse and into sin. And what did they do? Took a bite out of a piece of fruit? Well, what's the big deal about that? Because God told them not to. The Apostle Peter, he's ready one minute to take out his sword. And he's going after them. Then the next time we see him, He's scared to death of a servant girl who says, you must be one of them. Folks, it is the little things that get us. It's the little things that come up and tackle us from behind. We're blindsided by all of that. And so we've got to learn as we think about this, our security is not in, can I handle it? Oh, it's no big deal. Nobody will know. I've got all the bases covered. Better not play that game because dead flies destroy the perfume And your life can really stink it up. And what will other people, your wife, your husband, your children, maybe even your grandchildren, what will they think? What will they uncover? What will come out? And you may never get it back. You see, the point of this is it takes decades to build a life. But only takes a few seconds to lose your whole reputation, doesn't it? That's why you've heard for years from this pulpit, from a variety of preachers, don't compromise. Just do right. Because there's a price to pay when you don't. David found that out. And he found it out in a very hard way. You can't do it and you can't get away with it and the price 
is too high. Because sin takes you places you never wanted to go. Keeps you longer than you ever wanted to stay. And it costs you more than you ever wanted to pay. I could name names of people that you would know who are no longer in the ministry. They were up here on this stage. Maybe they preached. Maybe they were singing. But they're no longer in the ministry. I've had people I've served on staff with that it was the little things that got them. And now they've gone to heaven and there's no chance to make up for all of that. I'm glad they're in heaven. But what a sad thing it would be to have a wasted life to present before the Lord. You see what I'm saying? Does this make sense? So we need to pray. Bow your heads, please, and close your eyes. Father, as we think about this, I see two things that just trip us up all the time. We forget that our security is in the Lord. We act like it's in money, circumstances, people, popularity, whatever. Circumstances going our way. And that's just not true. We've got to get right with you and trust in you like David did in this psalm. Then the other thing is, when things are going well and you're blessing us, we must never, ever take that for granted because it's those little flies that destroy and cause a stench to come out of that wonderful perfume. And we want our lives to be perfumed to you. And we don't want any of the dead flies in them. We don't want to live a life of folly. Because we don't know how much time we've got. But even more than that, you're worthy of better than that. Help us, Lord, we're frail. Help us, Father, we're weak. Help us, Father, we are rebellious and we're sinful. Help us because in the midst of all of that, we are so stinking prideful. We need you. We need you all the time. We need you every hour. Be patient with us. Bless us, teach us, and protect us from even the little sins that destroy the vineyard that you're building in us. And we pray this now in Jesus' name, thanking you for teaching us so well through your Holy Spirit's work in our lives. And for the glory of God, we say in Jesus' name. And if you agree, would you say amen?